Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back, prom party. I have no snappy retort for this movie because I don't know if there's any oneers or zingers to open with. <laughs> I mean, there's really not. <laughs> no, this movie this movie is carried by the visuals and the pacing and not so much the dialogue. Very true. Very, very true. This is not exactly like a quotable fun time movie. It's just a, oh, that was neat. It is neat. I'm excited to talk about Hannah. Beautiful. Or or Hannah if you're not German. Hannah. Hannah, but definitely not Hannah. Not Hannah, which Kate Blanchett definitely should say Hannah with her like Jodie Foster ass country fried accent. Yeah, she definitely has this like Appalachian Southern sort of dialect going on that's not consistent, but I think that's intentional. That's, that's the point, yeah. It, but the fact that she never calls her Hannah, like to me, I'm like, that's the giveaway. That's Darling. the giveaway that this is not your authentic <laughs> accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes, we are talking about Hannah today, and this is actually one of those really fun episodes where Harmony chose this movie. Yeah, I bought this DVD for like, I think a dollar in a resale store when we were back in Ohio last year. Cause I was like, oh fuck, I forgot about this movie. I got this movie along with Project Grizzly, which is the most bananas Canadian jackass shit I've ever seen for like the first half. And then it gets into like weird spiritualism in the second half and it's not nearly as fun. Mm -hmm. And a movie that is like, called Blood and Guts and Octane and Bullets or something like that. And mm-hmm. It clearly wants to be a Tarantino movie, but it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> but this is this movie, consistent. Not like, this movie has a good first half and then follows through on its second half of those dollar purchases that I got. <laughs> so my question for you, because you don't choose the movies for the show very often. Nope. Why this one? I think that this is just something very unique and interesting. Um, we obviously see a lot of very similar trends on the show just because of the nature of teen cinema and marketability. But this is a coming-of-age story that is so wholly different than any other coming-of-age story I'm pretty sure we've ever covered, Mm -hmm. might ever cover. Mm -hmm. It also is an action film that blends together tons of other stylistic choices that I don't see combined ever. And I just think it's a really interesting movie, personally. I'm right there with you, and we even had this conversation off mic where we both sort of had the idea that once we announce this title, uh, people are going to be like, what? 
Or they'll say, hey, that was a movie, wasn't it? (laughs) Because I think that what this movie does that's so interesting is that, yes, it is an action movie, like, first and foremost, but this is absolutely a coming-of-age movie, and I don't think that it ever gets brought up in the conversations of of coming-of-age movies because it is an action movie and because it is so different than the usual sort of of coming-of-age stories that we see, especially on this show. Well, it's also a fairy tale movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's technically about a homeschool girl studying abroad and backtracking across Europe on a road trip, but that's I mean... not what this movie is, but that's technically what it is. <laughs> I mean, you're so, not wrong. So lots of different uh, elements in play just for this one movie, and a, a discussion I actually think is worth bringing up like right out the gate is, BJ, who is this movie for? Okay, so... Because... <laughs> It is an action movie, but who's it for? You asked me this when we were watching it last night, and I genuinely couldn't come up with an answer for you because on a surface level, like, this movie feels very at home with, like, the Jason Bourne movies that were really popular of this time period, but because it is so much about this teenage girl, I can immediately see a lot of people who would gravitate towards these types of action films being like not down with it immediately just because they don't know how to see themselves or they don't know how to follow a protagonist that isn't like their own male fantasy figure. No, you need like a like a stand in. Like I think we got that a little bit more in like Logan where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll sign up for this, but only because it stars Logan, mm-hmm. not it stars Hannah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so speaking of what this movie is even about, I have both the Regular synopsis that's used on like IMDb and Fandango because that's, you know, the the very easy one. But what I found interesting is that Focus Features, who distributed this movie, also have provided their own synopsis like pretty much everywhere. And I don't know if they do this for every movie or if this was just like them trying to say, hey, there's a lot more going on in this story than what this like two sentence blurb is telling you because they want people to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both also thought maybe it was something that they added once the uh, Hana series became a thing because they want people to obviously see the source material that the series is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, but this doesn't happen very often. And so to see an actual distribution company be like, hold the phone, here's a better a better synopsis is really, really fascinating. Sure. So here's what we what we have. I'll do I'll do the easy, like social media friendly one first. Okay. A 16-year-old girl who was raised by her father to be the perfect assassin is dispatched on a mission across Europe, tracked by a ruthless intelligence agent and her operatives. Um, I guess. That, that's that's about as fair as me saying that she's homeschooled and backpacking. Mm-hmm. That, that's technically not wrong, sure. Right, right. It's not wrong, but it's like, okay. You're leaving out a lot. So here's what Focus Features has to say. Hannah, Sir Sharonin, is a teenage girl. Uniquely, she has the strength, the stamina, and the skills of a soldier. These come from being raised by her father, Eric Heller, Eric Banna, an ex-CIA man in the wilds of Finland. Living a life unlike any other teenager, her upbringing and training have been one and the same, all geared toward making her the perfect assassin. The turning point in her adolescence is a sharp one. Sent into the world by her father on a mission, Hannah journeys stealthily across Europe while eluding agents dispatched after her by the ruthless intelligence operative Marissa, Kate Blanchett, who has secrets of her own. As she nears her ultimate target, Hannah faces startling revelations about her existence and unexpected questions about her humanity. See, 
this being such a fleshed out synopsis makes it feel like more of the pitch for a TV show. Mm-hmm. Because all of that really only encompasses like the first 30 minutes of this movie, which I think is fascinating because there's also several different trailers that exist out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the American one like leads with like, this is the fairy tale story of a girl and her father. And like it leads with like storybook language as like, you know, text on screen. And then it highlights like all the action sequences like whole hog. But this movie isn't doesn't have that many action sequences. It's a little more like a run Lola run than like a knuckles down like fist fight kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Like the trailer makes it seem the international one strips away the fairy tale aspect and just leads with like the sort of sleeper cell infiltration government insurgentsness of like the first 30 minutes mm-hmm. where it feels like so much like a 2000, like there's flashing lights and spinning cameras and chrome and stainless steel and concrete and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But that's again, not really what this movie is. I think it's just, I think it's like a way of luring guys in mm-hmm. who aren't interested in this movie. It's like, here's something you recognize. You recognize this color palette. You recognize this setting. You recognize sort of these tropes. And then we're going to go on a different journey once we get out and end up in, like, the deserts of Morocco. Yeah, the marketing for this movie very much feels like it was intentionally trying to bamboozle people, knowing that if they knew just how much of a coming-of-age story this movie would be, people would probably check out because... People are misogynist and they don't think women can have action films. Um, So that's definitely a a huge part of it and why I find this to be a really interesting movie to dissect because you're right. This is a totally different movie from the coming-of-age stories we normally get. Honestly, the closest thing that we've covered so far was on our Sadie Hawkins dance when we talked about Mm Kick-Ass in terms of how Hit Girl was raised. And that is obviously an entirely different movie, different tone, different style. Everything about that is different. But they do have that connective tissue of from birth, you have been trained to take somebody down. Like, mm-hmm. and that is one hell of a way to be raised. And I think Hollywood loves doing it with girls because the thing is, like, that is a real thing that happens in this world globally. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, though, it is boys. Like, you are born and you are going to be a soldier, and we are going to train you from birth to be a soldier and put you in the military for, you know, wherever we live. That is a thing that happens, Mm -hmm. but then whenever it's a girl, suddenly it's like, ooh, this is interesting because they don't expect women to be tough or strong or in any way capable of defending themselves. So Mm -hmm. then it becomes interesting because, well, how is this teenage girl going to take down all of these scary men with guns? It's almost like novelty. Yes. Which, like, this is not necessarily, like, a new concept, um, a movie that I super-duper love called Lady Snowblood, which mm-hmm. more or less Kill Bill is kind of ripping off, One like, million a million percent. times over. Yes. Um, that's that's basically the same sort of story, literally from birth. Mm-hmm. Um, you have stuff like even Black Widow or I think, what was it, Red Sparrow? Mm-hmm. Like, these are, these are very similar sort of stories that we see pop up every now and then. But this seems like a good enough time to talk about a little bit of context if you're down. I am very down. Give me this context of, what is this, 2011? It is 2011, and it is a wonky year for teen releases. Mm-hmm. So... For anybody keeping score at home, this is our first film that we have ever covered from the year 2011. Which is wild because we've been doing this show for, you know, two and a half years now. Yeah, of all the episodes we've done, we've just, this is during the franchise era where, you know, your Harry Potters and your Twilights are dominating the blockbuster sphere and most other stuff isn't getting recognition or the care or the time that those sorts of films are. So looking at other releases, we have obviously like, 
Twilight had Breaking Dawn Part 1, Deathly Hollows Part 2 came out this year. Also, you have stuff like the Footloose remake, Beastly, um, one of the Cinderella story movies, uh, the Once Upon a Song, I think it's the third one. Mm-hmm. Mean Girls 2. Rough. Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure. Great. Um, some other movies that I haven't recognized, but BJ tells me that we will cover on the show at some point. But it's not a strong year for, like, original stories. Mm-hmm. You get, like, I don't know, Abduction, mm-hmm. which is basically just riding the tailwinds of Twilight or, like, Soul Surfer. Mm-hmm. So... There are original stories, but again, like, this is very much dominated by IPs and sequels and remakes. No, you're totally right. But I think something else to keep in mind in terms of where this movie kind of fits is we are in the post-Taken makes a bazillion dollars era, and now everybody is just shitting out their own version of, like, a weird action movie where someone is, you know, going across Europe. So I love that you bring up Taken. We talked about the Bourne movies earlier. The Bourne trilogy made like a billion dollars. The yeah. Taken trilogy, which only the first one is out by this point, well, will go on to make like almost a billion dollars. Yeah. In addition to those, you had like the James Bond series got a breath of fresh air with the Daniel Craig era of Casino mm-hmm. Royale and Quantum of Solace around this time. You had Kick-Ass, obviously, that came out and has a very similar story to this. Mm-hmm. That's the year before, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And... Interestingly enough, we talked about like action films that star like women or girls and how people don't take them seriously. There's one person they'll take seriously, which is Angelina Jolie, who did very well and made like $300 million with Wanted and then again with Salt. Mm-hmm. So Angelina Jolie, we, we buy as a credible badass. I mean, she's Lara Croft. How could you And not? that's exactly why, because then they can take that as the, the justification and the proof that she can do this. And then they could just keep putting her in action movies. Yeah. And it's worth noting that when you talk about all these action films that involve like sleeper agents and government insurgents and spies and action like this, how much of that do you think is a direct response to the fact that we are uh, at war again So I go back and forth on this a bit because there's one cynical side of my brain that views any sort of like, oh, the government is kind of cool or like being a CIA agent is kind of cool always feels like propaganda. But I also don't want to imply that everybody who writes these stories is actively like, I'm making the decision to make propaganda. I Mm -hmm. think some people just think like the idea is cool and you need the shorthand language. So that's what you use. So that's why I go back and forth about it. But I do think that around 2011, this is when the the sort of like, we'll stick a boot in your ass kind of response from 9-11 has really died down and people mm-hmm. are not super chill with the fact that we are at war. Don't get me wrong. There have always been people who spoke out against the war since 9-11, sure. but there was this sort of like giant swoop of like, fuck yeah, let's nuke them all that happened after 9-11. That's how propaganda works. Because that's how propaganda works, yes. But I think by the time like 2011 rolled around, like even people who were like very into the idea of going to war like a decade prior, I think had become soured on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It became a lot more well known how fucking useless this war was, Uh, like that we weren't actually doing anything other than like harming innocent civilians. People were coming home from the war super fucked up and morale was starting to drop and what was starting to pick up was a lot of that like anti-war fuck the government sort of mentality that many of us you know obviously are still carrying with us and still very Mm -hmm. much feel and i think that the the explosion of these sorts of movies 
was kind of a way to get people back on board with, no, 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 the government are the good guys, though. Like, remember, the government is doing good things, and without them, we are all in danger's way, and that's why it's cool to be okay with the government and think that they're cool badasses. Well, it's it's very much uh, like the 24 of it all, where it's like, maybe the government's bad, but there's good guys who are going rogue and fighting for you in the government. Right. Or they're fighting for themselves to be free of the government, but they're using all their government training to do it. And also, maybe you could awaken their crazy part of their brain that will turn them into a super agent at any time. Right. It's it's such a weird sort of area to look into because I think there's just so many things happening at the same time. And again, I genuinely don't think that like Joe Wright, who made this film, who is known for making things like Pride and Prejudice and Atonement and all of these types of movies was like, you know what I want to do? Make government propaganda. That, no, that no, no, was no. like the 40th thing from his mind. No, this film is quite decidedly anti the government. 100% um, yes. <laughs> and speaking of anti the government, another big outlier that is worth bringing up is this movie did okay. It cost like 30 million, probably mostly from like insurance for stunts and that they have so many different locales they film in. Mm-hmm. But it made like 60, so it did okay. I saw this movie in theaters. I think that me and my friends Trisha and Ray were the only ones there Mm -hmm. at the Tower City Theater downtown Cleveland, which is a big theater. Yeah, it's huge. (laughs) (laughs) No one else was there to see this movie, unfortunately. But this is the year before the first Hunger Games movie comes out, which means Mm -hmm. the books are doing very well for themselves. And a discussion that we had is, would this movie have done better if the Hunger Games was out already? And I'm not sure that it would. Um, I think people might have accused it of being like a ripoff because that's just what people like to do or it'll pit strong women against each other in a way that's really unnecessary. But also, I'm not, I'm not positive that this movie would do well because it's, it's a bleak fucking movie. Yeah. Lots of people die senselessly because the government is evil and cruel. And like, obviously that happens in The Hunger Games too, but that is dystopian. That is a fantasy setting. Despite like the storybook tropes and motifs that exist here, this is not a fantasy movie. No, and I think that you're absolutely right. I think people would have probably been really down to go see it because of The Hunger Games and being able to have that acceptability of a woman in, like, an action-led movie. Mm -hmm. But then they would sit there and watch it and go, but wait, this where's all of, like, the fancy distractions I can get from the Capitol? Because that doesn't exist in this movie. Yeah, Um, but those kids on Tumblr would have gone crazy because this movie's just an eensy bit gay. This movie is an eensy bit gay. And before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hey there, prom party. We're trying something a little bit different with the morning announcements this month. And if this works out for you, then we'll probably just run it like this from here on out. It's, it seems like a really good way of like conveying updates and what we've got going on to all of you. So I don't know why we didn't think of this sooner. <laughs> we have some fun things planned for this month outside of just the main show. Over on the Patreon, we have some episodes coming up for Harold and Maude for Valentine's Day. 40 Days and 40 Nights for a little bit of romance and because it's Lent and that seems appropriate. But more importantly, Shannon Sossaman's there and we could all use more of her in our lives. We're going to be doing a musical milestones episode on Evanescence, which BJ has been dying to talk about for pretty much for the entirety we've been doing that segment. Because in case you didn't know, BJ had three separate Amy Lee posters hanging in her childhood bedroom. Uh, We're continuing to work our way through Freaks and Geeks. We're doing episodes four, five, and six this month, as well as something new we have planned for coming to the Patreon this month. So many people send us requests every single week. 
So we're launching a suggestion box. So if you want to join the Patreon at even the lowest tier of $1, you'll get access to that. And you can just sort of anonymously say like, hey, here's some stuff that I would really like it if you covered. In addition to all of that, we've also got the playlist. We have our monthly newsletter and access to all of the awesome stuff we have in the back catalog. And as always, we totally understand if you're not able to support the Patreon. Just go ahead and give us a rating if you can and shout us out to any of your friends who you think might might like like what we offer. Thank you so much. And now back to the movie. All righty. So as we start to dive in deep, I think that it's best that we break apart this movie by scenes rather than characters because this is kind of just like a nonstop journey that's Mm -hmm. happening. But I do want to talk about Hana as a character before we do that because she is in like 99.9% of the scenes in this movie. Yeah. uh, Which is If not her, then Eric Bana or Kate Blanchett. Right. And then (laughs) those two will enter and exit each other's scenes. Yes. Um, So this movie falls in like a really interesting place specifically in Saoirse Ronan's filmography. So Saoirse Ronan is probably going to be one of those actors that's going to be a sleeper for making the most appearances on this show. Uh, one, it's shocking that this is her first appearance on the show and it's not for Lady Bird. Yeah. Um, which I think is just really fantastic. But she had like a five year period where she was in nothing but coming of age stories and they are all wildly different and they all have very different themes. So it's going to be really fun to explore her kind of moving forward. Mm -hmm. But at this point in her career... Um, her big thing is obviously Atonement, which is also directed by Joe Wright. That's like a big deal for her. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lovely Bones, which is a movie that we will probably never cover on this podcast specifically because of all of the horrible shit that the author has done. Or maybe we will cover it and just dedicate a huge chunk to why that author fucking sucks. I mean, she popped on my radar for the first time because of the previews for The Lovely Bones, mm-hmm. where I was like, you have a, like, an, a look that almost looks otherworldly and I can't put my finger on it. And then they like really amped it up for this movie. Totally. Where she's got like these Scandinavian features that make her look like she doesn't exist in our world. Yeah, very much so. And like Saoirse Ronan is Irish. Um, I mean, she's American born Irish, but like that's just who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Lovely Bones, she is the English dub voice in uh, Arietti, the Studio Ghibli film. Which is basically just the borrowers. Yes. Uh, she's in The Way Back. It's a survival film. Um, you know, it's it's pretty cool. She does Hana the same year. She also does Violet and Daisy, which is a movie we will definitely cover on the show. Um, and then she kind of explodes with like Byzantium and The Host and How I Live Now. And then eventually the Grand Budapest Hotel. And like from there, it's just like we're off to the races. Uh-huh. Um, so she does have a lot of really, really cool stuff. But She's, this... she's going to appear on this show a lot for not being in franchises like Anna Kendrick. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, but it's interesting because this is such a different turn for her compared to everything that comes before and becomes after. Uh-huh. Because when you hear the names like Joe Wright and Saoirse Ronan, Um, You don't think of action movies. You Uh think of Atonement. You think of Pride and Prejudice. You think of these, like, beautiful period piece literary adaptations. And this is not that. No. (laughs) Like, considerably not that. Um, So it's really cool to see. And I think that this is a movie that if you're a fan of Saoirse Ronan, you should absolutely be watching. Because it really does showcase just the, the great range that she has as a performer. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've not even seen a number of those films. But Mm -hmm. even from what I've seen, like, she is not pigeonholed in any way. No. Especially because you just take this movie where she is emotionally stilted. Mm -hmm. Like, there could be a read made to this film that Hannah is... Like she's 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 very sheltered in a way. She's mm-hmm. not worldly outside of like an academic setting. I I described her as homeschooled earlier, which I think is very apt. But you could make an argument that she almost is like on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. She 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 has some neurodivergent qualities because of how she was raised, and also because her DNA is literally altered. Right. So I have seen a couple of people, mostly on like Tumblr, uh, have these conversations where they're like, "Why this character is autistic?" Actually, sure. And she is one that pops up pretty frequently because they talk about like how she does have this like, you know, you you could argue that like. <laughs> Being an assassin is her special interest because that is when she is the most like laser focused, Mm -hmm. knows exactly what to do. But when you put her in any sort of social situation that is quote unquote normal, obviously we're using humongous air quotes because normal is subjective. But when you put her in these like typical situations, she behaves in a very atypical manner. And I find that also really fascinating because I love the idea of having neurodivergent action heroes. I think that that they're actually pretty common in the genre, but no one ever wants to unpack them. No, but like for real, who's more attuned to be really, really good at this? It's Mm -hmm. she's thinking about like logistics and survival in a way that like our silly human emotions aren't. And I really, really like the way that like her dad, Eric, sort of uh, says, uh, he, he writes lore for her. Here's mm-hmm. your backstory. You live at this specific street. You go like to go to the park and these are your two best friends names and you have a dog named Trudy. And she just recites it out like she's just doing a list. Mm-hmm. And it really shows that he did not teach her any kind of like conveyance of being like, hey, say it like a fucking human Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of like a machine Mm -hmm. because he's raised her to be a killing machine. Mm -hmm. And I I just think that that's her her getting to experience the world with like a backpacking hippie family is such an interesting juxtaposition from Mm -hmm. her entire childhood and young adolescence. Agreed completely. And obviously this is, you know, the general statement that we're like not implying that people who are neurodivergent are machines by any stretch of the imagination. No, she is. Uh, But she is, like she very much is. And I think that it's really interesting watching this child who is essentially a machine experiencing the world with emotion, with vibrancy, with color in mm-hmm. a lot of instances for the first time. Uh, like, it's just a good, just completely new worldview, and she doesn't know how to function in those situations. I think that is very applicable, and I say that as a neurodivergent person myself. Yeah, and I, you could even just, like, pull this back. We talk about homeschool and how the biggest detriment against kids who are homeschooled for, you know, any reasons that they might be they miss out on socializing with people their own age. Mm-hmm. And that's really evident like when she meets Sophie. And I fucking love Sophie as a character. Sophie's a great character. She is such a wonderful like best friend character. And she does not get enough credit in like the good best friend character canon. No, because Sophie is kind of awful. But in a way where she's just really ignorant in like a like a silly British way where she doesn't know things where it's like, oh, is Kraut a racial slur? I have no idea. Is it offensive in the way Lesbo is? Because I quite think I would like to be a lesbian, but only one that holds hands and I would get to marry a man eventually. (laughs) Right. And it's like, honey, that means you're bisexual. That's okay. You're allowed to be. (laughs) Yeah. But like, okay, let's let's actually look at this in an interesting perspective here where Sophie has obviously grown up dealing with a lot of like social conditioning. And Mm -hmm. you could say that like, you know, enforced heteronormativity, 
or like she's bisexual but has like a preference towards men or realize that there's a social stigma with women. Like there's a million things you could say about that one little interaction they have. Mm -hmm. But you can also unpack that in like a broader scope amongst these two, which is that right now we're seeing like this 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 tidal wave of young queer people who are getting diagnosed with like neurodivergency. And so many of them are like, yeah, actually, um, I'm super queer or I'm non-binary or I'm trans. And like, it's such a thing where you don't even process it as a social stigma because you're just like, yeah, I don't fucking care. Who, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. who gives a shit? And that's so much more evident for like how she is operating because she's operating purely on feeling without having like societal influence. Right. So, like, she, so she's even more self-assured that way. Absolutely. Like anything that she feels, she doesn't know if there is any sort of like social stigma or hang up attached to it because mm-hmm. she's literally never experienced it. So in a weird way, everything that she feels is like the most pure way. Like this is some uncut, uncut shit, yep. uncut emotions because she has nothing else to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So she feels it because she feels it. She expresses it because she feels like it. Yeah. And like there's nothing holding her back, which I think is so incredibly freeing in a way that I wish that all of us could live, but that unfortunately is not reality. No, we all didn't grow up in the forests of Finland. No, we didn't grow up being trained to be killing machines with the operative of killing the person who wants us dead most. Yeah, the person who killed our mother. Right. <laughs> and something interesting too, and I don't know if this is going to resonate. It, it might, it might. I think... That the reason that the Hana TV series happened it has nothing to do with the success of the film, has nothing to do with how interesting the story is, has everything to do with the fact that Stranger Things is popular, and Eleven and Hana have very similar backstories. Yeah, no, I could see that. That's what I think happened here. Because when talking about Hana as a character, so she is genetically modified from birth because they were basically going to turn children into Super, super soldiers, soldiers yeah. um, and all of the kids were killed and she's the one who escaped uh, and she's been hiding out and training because her ultimate mission is that one day she's going to have to kill Kate Blanchett because Kate Blanchett wants her fucking dead mm-hmm. because she is evidence that the government did bad shit. She is the one loose thread who has been missing for like 15 years. Yes. Um, so that is very eerily similar to Eleven's backstory in Stranger Things, obviously without like psychic powers, psychic powers and monster portals to other dimensions. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is a a bit more grounded. Yeah. Take that aspect away. And it is kind of a one-to-one. It's these kids that the, the government was studying on and trying to turn them into weapons, like Mm -hmm. human weapons. And that's what happened here. So it doesn't surprise me that there was like an increased interest of like, we want to bring the story back after stranger things because it made a bajillion bazillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just weird how things are cyclical like that, yeah. you know? Cause like in a lot of ways, this movie feels very ahead of its time in that like, this is an action movie starring a teenage girl that's pre hunger games. This is also a story that has the same backstory as stranger things pre stranger things. But people were just not ready for it mm-hmm. in 2011. I just don't think that they were ready yet. No, I, I agree. I also think that you just really need to gloss up that kind of darkness. Otherwise, it doesn't go down quite as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, you need like the silly like Spielbergian 80s sheen to Eleven's backstory. Otherwise, people go, this is really depressing. Or you need like the brightly colored comic book world of something like Kick-Ass. Otherwise, it's super fucking depressing. So, Hannah, Hannah, quite impressed about you traveling around on your own. 
My father encourages me to be independent. You see, that's wonderful. I was backpacking at your Where is he, your father? I spent a heavenly summer just island hopping around Greece. Bed hopping around Greece. What? <laughs> no, it's valuable. Our experience makes us who we are. Isn't that right, kids? So, Hannah, is your mum and dad still together? My mother is dead. Nice one, Dad. I'm sorry to hear that. I lost my mum when I was very young, so... It's all right. It happened a long time ago. Hannah, what did your mum die of? Three bullets. <coughs> oh, my God. That's appalling. Let's kind of, like, break apart the major scenes in this and talk about, like, I guess what they mean and how we process them. Sure. So the opening scene is, like, the she's finishing up her training with her dad, Eric Bana, mm -hmm. and is like, hey, you need to be prepared to kill someone even... If you're sleeping, you need to learn every language in, like, the human world. Mm -hmm. um, you need to constantly be watching your back, even if it's only us out here, because I could kill you. You don't know. Like, mm -hmm. you can't trust anyone. And then they end up basically flipping the locator that sends, like, the government to come see her because she's ready. She thinks she's finally ready to leave the forest. Mm -hmm. And then she kills some soldiers and gets abducted and taken to Morocco in, like, a bunker. Mm -hmm. So what I find interesting in terms of... Like, she's ready, it's time to turn the sensor on kind of thing, is that is so terrifying to me because <laughs> we've covered a similar scene, and bear with me here on this. Uh -huh. It's like the moment in The Final Girls when Angela Trimber is like, all right, I'm going to stand in this doorway and start stripping, and this slasher is going to come. Like, we know what's happening. This does not have cherry pie. And this, no, Hannah does not have cherry pie by, <laughs> as a needle drop. It does have the Chemical Brothers, though, and that's really they, cool. They do the whole score, and also and David great. Bowie pops up for a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Um, but, like, knowing that she has had this entire life with basically, like, a beacon just hovering over her of like yeah at any moment if this gets flipped like people are going to come here and kill you terrifying like well, that is actually terrifying to me because he has to go dig it out of a hole mm -hmm. so like the, the option's never there but it's always like eventually this it's being drilled into her at some point this is your mission and now the opportunity for it is sitting on the table in front of you yeah that's terrifying to me <laughs> i don't know it's kind of like hey kids what college are you gonna do to go to what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You have to flip a switch. And once you flip it, you can't unflip it. You can't it. unflip it. You've already done it. Yeah. Yeah. That shit is so scary to me. Um, so, oh, God. Um, but what I like, though, is that when we see the training montage is, I mean, it's not really a montage. It's a scene. Mm -hmm. But when we see, you know, the training and she's hunting, um, you know immediately that, like, don't fuck with Hana. Like, mm -hmm. and I love that that's the establishment is that this isn't some, like, weird dad situation where it's like, but dad, I swear I'm ready. I could do it. Like mm -hmm. you don't have that as much like you wouldn't say like a sports movie. Probably. Sure. Um, you put see me that in coach, right? Like we don't have a put me in coach. It's just a genuine, like, are you confident enough? Because you're the one who has to make this decision. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really powerful is that this isn't dad's decision. It's her decision above all else. And that is terrifying. Okay. But like, Let's actually, like, talk about her dad for a second, where in most movies, like, using Kick-Ass as an example, it's a means for the dad to carry out revenge, but the reality of it is, sooner or later, they were going to come for her. Mm -hmm. Like, they're the government. They have 
stations set up probably all over the entire world. And sooner or later, they're going to find out about her. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you just get some blood drawn at the hospital and suddenly your records are in the system. Like something as simple as that could probably put you on their radar. So he's one of these dads who's like not good at saying I love you. He's finding other ways to show how much he loves his daughter, even though, you know, spoilers for the end of the movie. She's not his biological daughter. Mm -hmm. So... This is what this is a dad who is using the tools he's got as a means of like preparing his daughter for for the world. Mm-hmm. This is this is my way of showing I care about you and you don't understand that but maybe one day you will. It very much feels kind of like a more exaggerated version of Mr. Miyagi teaching Julie a different type of fight skills than he does for Daniel-san because she navigates the world differently. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not going to teach you how to win a karate match. I'm going to teach you how to defend yourself when somebody twice your size tries to take you down. Mm -hmm. And that is very much how he's preparing her because he knows you are not a quote unquote normal child. You are not going to have a normal existence and you do have to have certain skills to stay alive because they are going to come for you. It's not if, it's when, Mm -hmm. and it's best that you are prepared or you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like such a, like it's bleak, obviously. Sure. Like no child should ever have to exist in that way. But the fact that he knows that and is not just like, oh, I'm going to hide you out somewhere and hopefully no one ever finds you. It's like, no, 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 they will. They are going to find you. Let's live in reality here. Mm-hmm. And it's best that you're prepared for that. That I think, like, that's good parenting. I mean, like, it's fucked up, but it's good parenting. It's, he's doing the best he can with the situation he's got where Kate Blanchett as Marissa Weigler, she is the only one who gives a shit about this because mm-hmm. this is like, deep, deep files, like, deep in the government, and nobody knows about it, and she keeps the files in, like, a safe behind her wall of stylish pumps, (laughs) and they have to kill her because this she is the only one who knows about this and would care. Hilariously, that's also the uh, plot line of Beavis and Butthead do the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. (laughs) She's running for the government, and she may or may not have killed Beavis and Butthead in space, you know, decades prior, but they actually didn't die. They came through a wormhole, so now she has to kill them, because if they are out, then people will find out that she left them to die in space. Yeah, I mean, those guys are more so stumbling through the plot of their own movie, but yes, otherwise it's the same. But yes, it's the same plot. (laughs) Yeah. So, again, I think he's a dad who's like, we together are going to try to kill her, and we're going to attack on multiple fronts. And then you can have a normal life. Otherwise, you have to basically be in hiding for the rest of your existence. And that's no way to exist. Like, obviously, spending your entire life learning to be a killing machine, not a great existence. But at least once that mission is completed... She can defend herself. She can probably live a relatively normal life. Because, again, Kate Blanchett's the only one who really cares about it. So if she's out of the loop, nobody cares anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. So there are a couple articles that I'm going to reference. The first one is from the website In Their Own League, um, and this is a retrospective review on this movie being an action film. And I like this description a lot, which says, What sets Hana aside from other action films is how it is centered around women and how respectful it is of its female characters. Though it's directed and written by men, its female characters are fleshed out and never over-sexualized. Hana is presented very much as a child, both in the filming and in the costuming. Mm-hmm. In fact, Hana is almost more of a coming-of-age film than a traditional action movie. Hana ends up befriending a precocious teenage girl, uh, played by Jessica Bardens, that's Sophie. 
And the scenes between the two of them are highlights. There's even a scene where the two of them talk under the covers that is reminiscent of Wright's 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And the design of the film is also stunning from the perfectly suited soundtrack by the Chemical Brothers to an interesting use of lighting. The production design is great. The cabin in the woods and the CIA holding cell are highlights. The contrast between Hannah's rustic cabin and Marissa's sleek urban apartment towards the beginning of the film does a great job of setting up the theme of how little Hannah knows about modern society. But there are also beautiful moments within nature as well, and the way that Wright frames his shots are lovely. There's a lot of stylistic camera choices made from spinning shots to Dutch angles, but they're being integrated in well and never veer into being distracting. Perhaps Hannah is a good film because the action is part of the narrative rather than the narrative being part of the action. Mm. At its heart, it is a beautiful coming-of-age film as a girl deals with a difficult mission and learns that her father is not everything he says. Very well made. Action sequences are sprinkled throughout. As you might expect from Wright, the film is more sentimental than it might have been from another director, but that helps make it an action film that might appeal to those who don't typically like them. If you're a fan of Ronan's work or simply like a good plot-driven action film with compelling female lead, then Hannah is worth a watch. No, I agree with all of that. And it's really interesting to actually like think about the logistics of this movie. Um, because like the action sequences, like there's not as many as like the, the trailer or even like the classification, like as a genre might lead you to believe, but these probably feel underwhelming for people who are used to more action, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily a bad thing, at least for me, where you have some really good set piece actions. Like Eric Bana, there's a wonderful tracking shot of him like exiting a bus that goes for several minutes all the way down to whooping some dude's asses in a subway. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a good one -er. and Mm -hmm. It's actually following him. And that's what I love about this movie is something like Taken, which is like the worst example of American action cinema. And honestly, it's gotten worse as we've gotten more towards like names selling movies rather than movies selling movies in like the last 10 years. We a common problem you have is someone who can't fight, who is that the script demands that they fight. Mm -hmm. And then you have a lot of like really close cut angles where you don't get to see the action. A lot of like the camera. You never see anything land. You don't see fist hit. You don't see their face. There's a lot of these tricky things to try and make it look like old ass Liam Neeson is actually beating dudes up and he's not. Like he's actually jumping over fences and he's not. This movie actually writes action sequences that are not only appropriate for what these characters' capabilities are, but also are for what the actors' capabilities are. Mm-hmm. So it feels so much more logical and authentic because it doesn't cut you out of the moment. Totally. And the thing that I like the most about the segment that I just read is the idea that this is an action movie for people who may not typically be into action films mm-hmm. rather than it being the other way around. Because the unfortunate thing we hear all the time is this idea that women will see movies that have men in the lead or like we will see movies that are quote unquote, typically masculine, but the inverse is not the same. Men will not seek out films that are like very like femme at the center. Like Mm -hmm. they won't see those movies uh, because again, misogyny and the patriarchy, it's really cool. Everything always goes back to that. Um, Hannah doesn't feel like a coming of age movie that is trying to appeal to like boys or people who would normally not see those films. This feels like an action film that is trying to appeal to women, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And that is so exciting to me. And one, I think also why it didn't perform as well as it probably could have. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's just, again, that's 
the fucking horrible misogyny of the industry that exists. But that doesn't happen. Like, it doesn't happen very often that we have an action film that is like, yeah, we're not worried or concerned or focused on trying to gather the audience that's like, hell yeah, gun porn. Like, Mm -hmm. they're not trying to grab that audience. They're trying to grab the audience of people who like Pride and Prejudice. They're trying to grab the audience of people who like atonement and going, hey, did you know that you might also like action? And that is so exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, using Joe Wright as a director for this, because I'm not the most familiar with like the whole of his catalog. And to be fair, the other movies he makes are not Harmony movies and you would fucking hate that. That's that's okay. I think having him do this movie actually is kind of brilliant because there's a lot of scenes in this movie where they're long and there's no dialogue. And I think about like the logistics of what Seth Lockheed and David Farr wrote, or who are the guys who came up with the story in the screenplay. And not to knock their their writing in any way, um, apparently like Seth Lockheed's working on the Shadow of the Colossus movie, and I'm really psyched about that. But so much of what makes this movie jump and be exciting and compelling I don't think is in the writing. I think they had a really good concept and they got all, they put it all together. And then the people involved, like Joe Wright's directing and the Chemical Brothers score and all of the actors involved. That's what made this like such a, an electric and interesting film. So something that I think you might find interesting is Focus Features did an interview with Seth Lockheed in 2021. So around the time that the show was starting and they asked him about it. And so the first thing is that he started writing the screenplay when he was still in film school. Okay. He didn't finish until after he left. So this is also a script that's being written by somebody who's relatively young. Sure. Which I think is very, very cool. I think that sort of shows in a really good way. I think so too, because I think it's really adventurous. It's, it's adventurous and also it's it's optimistic in a way that only young people are. So they asked him where the idea for the character came from, and he says, The idea came from an image I had of this young girl running through the forest, and I kept asking myself, why is this image so haunting? Why is she running? While lots of sources, including films, inspired me, the biggest influence was a trip that I took when I was about 18 through Europe. Part of that trip was traveling from Turkey through Eastern Europe up to Denmark, and it was really my first exposure as a young man to the world. And in that way, I felt like that young woman running through the forest, growing up and experiencing the big, wonderful, scary world for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really interesting because some of my favorite pieces of like literature or plays or movies come from a similar inspiration where it's just like an image that you want the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, my best example of that is Equus, uh, the script that then, you know, became a movie and then is still, a you know, a bit, everyone knows Equus because it's the play that Daniel Radcliffe went full frontal in. Like that's yeah. what people know it as. Yeah. And that is such a shame to me because it is such <laughs> a brilliant play, but it came from this idea of like a kid who like blinded a bunch of horses, like in real life. And the playwright was like, okay, but why the fuck would you do that? Mm -hmm. And now I want to write a story as to like why somebody would do that. And it turned into Equus, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of him having this like visual of like, why is this so weird and scary to me? And where could it have come from? Yes. I I, I love the idea of unpacking a a feeling like um, Jeff Rosenstock, who is probably my favorite modern songwriter. And it's not even close. Uh, I remember listening to him discussing songwriting styles and when he would be working on a song, he would like just have a line or like something he would be shouting like a like leave me the fuck alone or something like that. It'd be like, cool, but why do I want to say that? Mm-hmm. What What is making me say that? And then you sort of figure out your own feelings and flesh out the rest of the song and the lyrics and the structure from there, because that's where it's like, that's the that's that's it. That's that's the uncut 
version of your feelings. That is the Hana version of your feelings. Now, why are you feeling it? Mm-hmm. And I just love that. And I loved also finding out, so the fairy tale motifs that exist that are just littered throughout here. Um, the reason that those were incorporated was intentional. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea that growing up, she would probably have limited resource material for something like this, especially like something that could be seen as entertaining because mm-hmm. that's what these books are. So I had Eric give her a book of Grimm's fairy tales, which she carried around with her as a way to understand the world. When Joe Wright got involved with the project, he wanted to highlight those fairy tale elements because for him, the story with its dark woods and wicked witch is like a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And he found an amazing way to give that literal interpretation to the story subtext. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also really interesting is that you have this subtext that's kind of buried into the story and then you get the right director who comes along and is like, no, let's put this on front street. I think that's really compelling and makes it very visually interesting mm-hmm. and again like joe wright adapts a lot of literature like that's kind of his thing so this is perfect for so him. this is perfect for him and i think that with a different director hana would be like a very basic shoot 'em up action film yeah. it would have been cool but would yeah. it have, would ha, would it, would we be doing a podcast episode about it probably not like i don't think so i think that by having him join the team it it adds this like layer to it that wouldn't have been there, which I think is really, really fascinating. Um, another thing that I think is fascinating is that Kate Blanchett was uh, the person that they had in mind for the character from the beginning. Mm-hmm. That character was written with Kate Blanchett in mind, but they never thought they could get her. So when they did, it was like, holy shit, uh, which I really, really, really like. <laughs> She's unbelievable. She is so stern and commanding and in a different movie where this was shot and written differently, I'd be like, oh, she's scary sexy. Mm-hmm. But she's not. Mm-hmm. She has the 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 silhouette and the the aura of someone who is scary sexy and very dominating. But like, she isn't. She mm-hmm. this this woman is all business, no pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I think that also speaks to how the women are written in this film. Oh, for Christ's sakes, Lewis. Uh, did your little girl tell you that? Even though he knows all about it. What are you listening to? Self-help. He looks... Are you in need of help? Oh, it's good to hear you. I didn't imagine we'd have the chance to talk. You don't have her, do you? You're not that good. Oh, Eric, you're such a flirt. Thanks all the way. You were a good agent, Eric. Sad to see you go dumb. What did I miss? I couldn't do it anymore. The things we did. I'm sorry with your Hannah. (sighs) With all of them. With Hannah. So why come back now? Dead guys. I asked you a question, Eric. Eric, are you still there? Speaking of something that you said earlier about, like, the feeling and unpacking the feeling. Sure. Uh, Focus Features asked him, um, you know, when you saw Sir Sharon and Eric Bana, like, play these characters, did it change your vision of who the characters were as you had written them? And this answer is amazing. Not really. One thing I learned is that it doesn't matter how the actor looks or acts, but how they feel. Mm -hmm. And both of them felt right. Mm -hmm. Eric brought an unexpected softness to his character. He projected this melancholy and heartache that made his connection to Hannah even more poignant and emotional. 
When I wrote Eric, he was very stern, and it was amazing to see a human being take this imaginary concept of an emotion and make it real like Eric did. As for Sersha, she got Hannah right off the bat. She understood how Hannah could be tough and scary in one moment and vulnerable the next. Sersha would walk on camera looking like this alien person with bleached eyebrows and blonde hair, Mm -hmm. and then right afterwards would be a 16-year-old kid hanging out on set, and it was amazing how she could just turn it off and on like that. And then talking about, like, the first time that he saw it, he was like, I remember the first time I watched the film, it was with the Chemical Brothers. And I was thinking that all of this came from this little idea I had, but none of it would exist without all the people who worked on it. Mm-hmm. When you're writing, you are just this lonely screenwriter. But on screen, I was able to see how all of these different people's passions and talent came together to make the film. I absolutely love that. I do, too, because I think we hear all of these stories, um, especially because this industry does not treat writers well. No. Um, I mean, as we're recording The director usually gets more attention than writers do when they take Mm -hmm. over a movie. Absolutely. And, like, as we're recording this, I will say that, like, there is a high probability that in a couple of months the WGA is going to strike. We're going to have another writer strike like we did a little over a decade ago. Um, It's probably going to happen again. And it's because writers are disrespected in this industry, like in a way that is really not cool. So it's really exciting to also know that this movie is so loved by the person who wrote it because the people who worked on this project got it and like Mm -hmm. understood what he was going for. And I think that that's why this movie is so fantastic because I don't feel like producer influence, if that makes sense. Like some movies, I watch it and I'm like, I can hear the producer note that is responsible for this decision Mm -hmm. or this choice or this line or whatever. And that doesn't exist here. Like this movie just feels like it was authentically like birthed from this idea and everybody accepted it and was all in on it. And that's what makes this movie feel so special. Agreed. Um, so the, the the bleakness of this movie, because that's what it is. And I, I think that that works well for like a Grimm's fairy tale, you know, because those are all cautionary tales. And most of them have sad endings like like uh, the space dog. I, I actually had a comparison that I was thinking about while you were talking about how uh, Eric Bana as Eric Heller brings a certain warmth to this role. Mm-hmm. And Roku has been really, really trying to get me to go to their channel and rewatch The Road. And I don't feel like having a bad day, so I'm not doing that. <laughs> but... If he was like a cold dad, if he if there was no warmth to this movie, because everyone who's trying to help out Hannah has warmth. They all mm-hmm. are good people seeing the good in things. Even him on his mission, he's doing good things in his own way. Mm-hmm. He would be the dad from the road who is such a gruff, unpleasant person. And like, mm-hmm. granted, he's still trying his best. It's a harsh world out there with no one providing any warmth. But that wouldn't work in this movie. Right. You, you would almost resent the dad in this movie if he did not have that that love. Totally. I, I'm right there with you because I also think that her training and her like preparation wouldn't feel so necessary, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. ultimately like you always feel like this is somebody who is genuinely trying to do what is best for his child. He's like, killing cops for his child. Good dad. <laughs> Always good dad for that. But, like, you can just tell that this isn't an instance of, like, a shitty, toxic guy who is just trying to turn his daughter into a weapon because he has shit that he's not unpacked yet Mm -hmm. and he's projecting it onto her. It doesn't feel like that. This genuinely feels like I have to do this for you or you will die. This is, 
this is preservation that I'm doing here. And it's because I care about you and I love you Mm -hmm. and I have to do this for you. And that, like that intention and knowing that that is there, that warmth and that, that love changes the, the, the feeling of this movie completely. Mm -hmm. And it's also why I feel like something like big daddy and hit girl are really well, because as much as yes, Hit Girl is being trained because of his own he issues. Wants, he wants to, her to bring out his revenge. Right. Because, like, that's obviously a bad thing. But he fucking loves Mindy. Mm-hmm. And he is doing this because of the love he has for her and for her mother because she was robbed of that. Mm-hmm. And she deserves to be able to enact that feeling as well. And I think that that's why those relationships work so well versus a lot of other relationships where it doesn't. It's why Hopper and Eleven work so well. Mm-hmm. Because as gruff and tough as he is, there's heart there and you need that. Like you can't have this story where it's like the, the cold unflinching dad that we see in like, you know, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, like Mm -hmm. the Ron Perlman dad. You can't have that character in this movie because it loses the motivation. Like the motivation then becomes totally different. And Mm -hmm. then the film falls apart. Like you need that. You're fighting for revenge. You're not fighting for survival. And that's sort of the difference between killing a deer to kill a deer and killing a deer to hunt. Yes. Which like you see at the start of the movie and the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful full circle moment. But all of this, we've talked about the scope of the whole movie and really only like the first like 40 minutes of the film. I know. We haven't even gotten <laughs> to Spain yet. I know. Because <laughs> yeah, we, we, we go from Morocco up to Spain and eventually make our way to Germany. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on in this movie, like a lot, a lot. Um, so something that was really fun to point out is that at one point, Kate Blanchett hires um, like her own personal kind of hitman. His name is Isaacs. He's played by Tom Hollander. And I got to point out to you that he is also like the head gay on season Season two of the White Lotus. Giant spoiler alert for season two of the White Lotus. Fast forward 10 seconds. Uh, he's the main gay who's after Jennifer Coolidge. These with, gays these are gays trying to kill, kill me. me. And he's also gay in Hana. So it's like, oh, you're just playing an evil gay guy who's trying to kill a woman oh. again. I love this. Oh, my God. He is such a good villain. First of all, he's like the most sinister Thomas Lennon type. He so is. Like, especially with like the kind of shitty bleach blonde hair. Like, there is a specific type of older gay man who has like shitty bleach blonde hair, and it's uh-huh. this appearance that I have like a soft spot in my heart for where it's like, oh, you said no to Toner today, didn't you? <laughs> yes. And he he owns like some sort of burlesque sex club, and, mm-hmm. and Marissa's like, oh, that girl's a little too young for you. And he's like, for your information, she has male and female genitalia, so fuck off. Right. <laughs> and they're playing this song that is called uh, The Devil's in the Details, which is very catchy, and he whistles it throughout the whole movie, and it's very much got like a twisted nerve kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it It's that motif of just this happy melody that isn't necessarily menacing Mm -hmm. but it's being recontextualized constantly because he's doing horrible things to people as he's whistling it Mm -hmm. and like there's a scene where like he's tossing a lead pipe in a hand in hand and it's like clicking against the rings in his on his fingers in rhythm to his whistling Mm -hmm. oh it all comes together great he has some skinheads who are just being skinheads (laughs) (laughs) just doing what they do and not in the cool like 80s counterculture punk bring it all together no, skinhead skin in heads. the fascist skinhead way. No, these these are the guys who are definitely a part of like the seedy underbelly of Germany that is very illegal in German. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty wild to see, but it does uh, lead towards my personal favorite action sequence, which is when Hannah knows that she's being tracked. She knows shit's about to go down and she tells Sophie, hey, don't follow me mm-hmm. um, because I'm about to kill the fuck out of these men. And uh, they're in like this beautiful labyrinth of storage containers and she kills the fuck out of a bunch of men. And unfortunately, poor Sophie watches it and has the realization of like, what the hell? They have this whole bonding moment where they're under blankets and I love like a sleepover under blankets shot in a movie. Oh, I do too. I think they're great. It's so intimate and the lighting is usually warm because it's coming through the sheets. Like, big fan. But... They're talking about how they want to be friends and they're saying like, well, you don't really know me and I don't really know me and I don't know how you could trust me, but like, I want to be friends with you. And then this is after a date they had with like two sort of like hunky, like Spanish boys Mm -hmm. where Hannah almost kills one of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he was just going, you know, typical first date things almost kill your date. He was just going in for a kiss and she did not read that correctly uh, and took him to the ground. But she is willing to kiss Sophie, which, you know, even if you want to get like very European about that, kissing people isn't necessarily a romantic thing. It's just right. a way of showing affection. Right. But they, there is there is queer tension to that scene. And it's, and it's very, very beautiful and cute. It's very warm. It's very cute. I think Sophie is sucks a little bit in the way that like, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a shitty teen sucks where she just has this like absurd thing where when we meet her she's like well MIA didn't speak English and you're gonna be my best friend who doesn't speak English and is from Sri Lanka and just starts immediately like applying a property to her not like a personality to her right but so she kind of sucks but like in a way that is totally believable for me yeah she sucks in the way that I expect most 15 year olds to sometimes suck that's exactly it yeah where it's like all right, but at the but, same but time, like kind, you're fine. She she's kind to Hannah, and like that's exactly they they want to be each other's friends. And sometimes just wanting to be friends with someone when you're a teenager is good enough to be friends. Mm-hmm. And then you figure it out as you go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think it's I think it's very very sweet. Um, and I also think that it's a, it's a nice juxtaposition of the world that Hannah has kind of always grew up in, and it's mm-hmm. nice that she has somebody who sort of buys into her like immediately. Where she's like, I think you're you weird, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, you're weird, but I like that. Like, and I think that that's cool, and I think that it's also very necessary mm-hmm. because we never know somebody's story, and obviously, like, it is a good thing to be on the defensive as mm-hmm. we should because sure. the world is a scary place. But sometimes you can find really great, wonderful relationships by just taking that risk and being like, you know what? You are a little weird, but let's find out why. Yeah. I like hanging out with weirdos. They're my favorite people. I fucking love weirdos. And also her parents are like, I like her parents a lot. I I think all of the dialogue with this British family is all extremely organic and believable. And especially like Sophie and Miles' mom, I think is just, she she's very hippy dippy in a way that like. The hippies of the 60s in America were like grew up to be Reaganites and the hippies of like our current time are kind of like Gwyneth Paltrow, Instagram influencer, <laughs> insufferable people. Yeah. She she's not that for me. Yeah. Like in the same way where it's like there are parts about you that just flashes like a blinking red light similar to Sophie. But I'm like, no, I don't think you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. I think you're just, you know. A, a nice, very free spirited lady. You're living in a van and backtracking across the world. Right. Van life, I guess, in 2011 when that wasn't, like, (laughs) as much of a a statement that it is now. Right. Yeah, I think it's, like, you know, she didn't turn into, like, the hippy-dippy, like, weird spiritualist. She just turned cottagecore. Yeah. Um, But it's, like, vancore. 
Yeah, and like she's just so nice about it. I don't know. She's willing to take this girl in just because she thinks she needs someone to look after her because she's clearly out on her own. Mm-hmm. And dad's like, well, where's her, where's her father? I'm, I'm worried about this. What the fuck's going on? And mm-hmm. to be fair, dad's not wrong. Bad things happen to them as a result. Yes. But like that's even that's even more tragic is like I like them so much. And honestly, I I like the guy, the innkeeper in Morocco. Mm -hmm. I like this family a lot. I like Mr. Grimm, who is the first time that Han is really aware of the the, the wake of death that follows behind her. Yes. And she finds his dead body. Oh, yeah. Just target practice with arrows. It's really sad. So if you were like apply this. To Grimm's fairy tale logic, maybe the moral of this fable is you shouldn't trust people even if you want to, but I don't think that's the lesson of the actual movie. No. I think the lesson is like, hey, the government will kill any innocent bloke along the way to get to whatever mission they're trying to take out. For real, though, that's like, that's 100% it because you could make the argument of like, oh no, everything I touch, I destroy. Anybody who gets close to me dies. Like, mm-hmm. you could make that argument all day but the reality of the situation is no it's that the government doesn't give a fuck and they will kill anybody if it means protecting their own ass and assets yeah you're not cursed or something this is just the government are full of evil people who do evil things (laughs) (laughs) especially like deep maverick government agents who are going off orders (laughs) so the last thing that i wanted to reference from this interview is that they asked the screenwriter after 10 years hannah seems to have a life of her own even finding new life on amazon prime what makes her so memorable and i really liked this answer He said, in one way, she is very enigmatic and mysterious. When she does reveal herself, she shows these simple human aspects that we can all relate to. She sees the world with a sense of innocence, taking things at face value. She also has the tools to protect herself and her sense of innocence. I feel that the world can be a fairly violent place emotionally. We connect to how she maintains and protects her sense of innocence because we all want to protect that part of ourselves. Dude, I think I like Seth Lockheed. Right? Dude has really good answers to everything on like a deep human level. (laughs) Like he's clearly thought a lot about this. Like in that to me, it tells me that this wasn't just somebody who wrote a script to be like, what if action movie, but girl? Mm -hmm. Like, and this is why it's really important to have these nuanced and complicated discussions about quote unquote, who gets to tell what story. Mm -hmm. I know we talked about that a little bit on like our Hellfest episode with Seth Sherwood, where he talked a lot about being a grown man who writes predominantly stories about teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And like, you can do it. Like there is a way to do it that is done with respect, that is done with a sense of authenticity and finding the way that we all can relate to these stories because ultimately that's how boy stories are written. I mean, this movie, the gravitas of this movie, mm-hmm. like they spare no expense in making it feel legit. Yeah. To, to the point where I think it honestly might be a slight turnoff to teen girls because there are like dialogueless moments. There are lot, lots of like long shots that are quiet, but mm-hmm. it's treating it with like adult dignity. There's reverence to it. Like this movie treats this idea of teenage existence and like adjusting to the world very fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. And obviously the stakes are super high given the fact like we're t- it's assassins. This is a story about assassins. Yeah. Um, but the situations with her adjusting to the world around her that she's never experienced before are given the same amount of gravity as the fact that the government's trying to kill her. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of an amazing parallel because 
it kind of feels like the government's trying to kill us all every day. Like, let me put my tinfoil hat on a little bit for a second. But that's how living as a woman in this world feels. It feels like the government is constantly trying to kill you. I mean... <laughs> so to see it validated in this way is weirdly refreshing. I, I don't think it's tinfoil hat the way that we are afraid of the government. I think it's tinfoil hat in the way that, like... Proud boys are afraid of the government. Right. <laughs> Where it's like, well, if we don't have guns, how will we protect ourselves from the government? It's like, no, we have every right to be scared because we are much more threatened than they are for completely different reasons. I saw a stand-up clip online the other day, and I am so sorry to whoever comedian is the one who made this joke. But he was talking about how, like, you know, that was a great idea in the 1700s to, like, make sure everybody had a gun because then they could face off with the government. But, like... Do the Boogaloo Boys and the Proud Boys, do they genuinely think that they could hold their own against, like, our trained military? LOL. Okay, sure, sure. They get a lot of uh, lot of misinformation from action movies where it's like, one soldier who's talented enough can take on the entire government. Yeah, and it's really convenient that everybody in the fight waits their turn. Yeah, but again, like, that's not a thing that happens in this movie, and I think it's that, again, we pulled things back to a really logical scale like our creepy german thomas lennon type he only has like a troop of three guys mm -hmm. like total like including mm -hmm. him yeah and so it's like a small group because they're only trying to get one person and that means that you're not having like 20 dudes all standing around waiting to come into the circle for their turn to do awesome choreo right like and this is 100 no shade to it it's not the raid and like the raid rules the raid rules so hard the raid but that 2 is, is the best sequel ever made it really is <laughs> um but like those are movies that when we talk about like the wait your turn action that's what they are it's like we're watching one person whip the shit out of somebody and then well boom someone else rotates in well boom someone else rotates in that doesn't happen in here this is like everybody's going at all times and it's just a matter of keep moving keep moving the reason that she's only dealing with one person at a time is not because people are waiting their turn it's because the movement doesn't stop well, it's because she's she's running to get to a yes. point where she can deal with them one at a time mm -hmm. specifically because they have like a height advantage and possibly a strength advantage over her even mm -hmm. if she is genetically altered yeah she's gotta work smarter and harder at the same time yeah which i think is really fascinating yeah um so as we sort of like wind things down i do want to talk about like the final confrontation with once, kate blanchett once, once we get to the the closed down fairy tale park the closed on Fairytale Park is one so cool. I, I love that it's foggy. I love that it's like overcast. I love that it's clearly everything's falling apart. And at best, this would be an off season. But like the dinosaur statues are crumbling. Yeah, it's really fantastic. And I know that I skipped over the uh, the conflict that's at the playground, uh, which is what happens when they first get to Germany. But like that scene also rules because it is simultaneously like the death of innocence. But at the same time, also like this is what your childhood was. You should have been on swings, but instead you were learning to kill. Oh, yeah. And it's just beautiful, beautiful I mean, imagery. And mind you, like the fascists are screaming out from their car, like run little piggy. And then Kate Blanchett comes out of a big bad wolf mouth later on. Like it's all just. Yeah, there's so much good oh, shit. Also just like dead bodies spinning on a like a merry-go-round. Ugh, great. Uh -huh. So then, yeah, we finally get our big confrontation at like the rundown fairy tale park. Very, very cool stuff we've got going on here. It feels very kind of like Snow White faces off with the queen. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely love that. And uh, mission accomplished, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Like Hannah ends up being more resourceful. Mm -hmm. She she uh, she fashions like a bow out of like a bungee cord and an arrow and like shoots Kate Blanchett and then chases her through a thing and she falls down a roller coaster and just sort of lays there and gets shot. Mm -hmm. And like, again, a, a good bookend. 
she just missed her heart, mm-hmm. which I guess in in the, in the context of the movie, I read that as like, oh, when she tried to shoot the deer, she, she aimed for the heart because mm-hmm. it's merciful. Mm-hmm. She just missed the heart here. Because you should feel pain. Yeah, it's intentional. Uh, that was a choice that she made. Uh, like, that is, to me, the idea of, like, I could have put this through your fucking eyes, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you need to feel this. Because you ruined my life. Yep. And I think that that is very, very powerful. And, um, uh, yeah, this movie rules. And also, Marissa ends up falling down, like, the roller coaster because she's not wearing sensible shoes because she just demands that she wears fashionable pumps. Mm-hmm. She likes expensive pumps. You know what, though? <laughs> like, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> she's doing I this can't whole, knock that. She's doing this whole fight scene in, in non-sensible shoes in the rain. <laughs> right. It gives us the, uh, <laughs> it, it gives us the, the visual that we were supposed to get from Jurassic World when everybody was complaining about Bryce Dallas Howard's shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, this actually acknowledges it. So look at that. Again, Hannah ahead of the time. Yep. <laughs> and before we completely say goodbye to Hannah, we do have to talk about the daddy-daughter monologue in this movie because that is a thing that we have in a good chunk of our coming-of-age stories is the father-daughter monologue. And it's not so much a monologue in this movie as much as it is an Eric. Al- it's an altercation. Yeah, it's Eric <laughs> explaining to Hannah like, the truth of her her identity. And uh-huh. it's it's a very highly emotional scene that then, of course, leads to a literal fight um, because that is what, th- like, this is how they converse. This is how this relationship exists, is that emotion is expressed through physicality more than anything. Well, yeah, we see that in the forest when he's trying to toughen her up and be like, watch your back. I could have killed you. Mm-hmm. I can overpower you. Look at me do it. Like, you need to be smarter than the people who are going to sneak up on you. And I think it's also really important that whenever he does that, he's not hanging it over her head like a threat. Like, he's genuinely, like, educating her uh-huh. of, like... He's not one of those dads who has to overpower his children to feel good about himself. Right, yeah, he's not doing that. He's not doing, like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Like, uh-huh. he's not that kind of a dad. He's just like, hey, I was open. Like, you left yourself open, I could have taken you out in this moment. Obviously, they're not going well, to. Especially in this scene where they're they're meeting up at Hannah's grandma's house, where the dead body is gone, but, like, she was shot there by Marissa earlier. Mm-hmm. They're meeting up at that, and he's not trying to fight her. He's trying to get her to stop fighting. Mm -hmm. And that's him showing weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's how she wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really wild exchange to watch because it feels like taking those moments that we see in so many other coming of age movies and obviously like skyrocketing the stakes. Oh yeah. Like this is this goes well above most films where it's like, you mean I'm adopted? Mm Mm-hmm. Very much so. And what's fascinating is In thinking about Hannah, right? So a lot of teen movies are coming-of-age stories. Mm -hmm. This movie is. Sure. A lot, lot of teen films are also adaptations of literature. Everything from Clueless to 10 Things I Hate About You or the even, you know, more obvious things like a Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. Hannah is also that. It's, It's a fairy tale. It feels like it should be an adaptation of a book. Yes. But it's not. But it's not, which is wild. Um, And it's fascinating to me that we don't think of Hana in the same way that we do a lot of those other stories. Mm -hmm. Even though it's the exact same thing, it just happens to fall under a different subgenre because this is more of an action movie. And 
I don't know. Maybe at the very least it's a thriller. Yeah. We don't do a lot of minimum. thrillers on this show. Yeah. Um, but what I just find really fascinating and why I love this show and why I was really excited when you wanted to talk about this is that Hana has all of the same elements of every movie that we've ever covered on this show, just presented in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. And to me, like that is the brilliance of this genre and why it is so fucking stupid that people write off like teen girl cinema and teen girl stories as like fluff or whatever Mm -hmm. because the story rules these characters rule the action rules this movie rules yeah and yet that's what this is and it is undeniable like people could probably say this is like elevated teen girl cinema if they wanted to be pretentious about it but that's what this is like this is as much a teen girl story as a cinderella story Mm -hmm. i love it yeah, and it all kind of caps off with the with 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 Eric and Hannah, and they they go their separate ways, and he legitimately dies on that playground mm-hmm. trying to protect her. Mm-hmm. So, you know what? Like, you you can't elevate the stakes of like teen drama and coming of age and dad speeches more than that. And it makes it even more of a fairy tale because she loses her father and yep. they all do. Yep. They all lose their both, fathers. Both of her parents <laughs> need to be dead in order for this to be a proper fairy tale. Exactly. <laughs> well, I feel like I already know the answer, but the time has come. Hannah has asked you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her tickets so she can go on her own? When I first saw Hannah at Tower City, it was actually brought to my attention by my friend Ray, who is like, was it was a macho straight dude who practiced martial arts because like I want to be able to kick someone's ass if I need to. I want to defend people. I want to be a superhero. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that he was like, "Hey, I want to go watch this movie," and I had no idea what it was because sometimes dudes are just cool and they like to watch people kick ass and they don't care if they're a girl or Batman. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about this movie for like the ten years after that, despite never revisiting it. Until I picked it up on a whim because I was like, oh, fuck, I love this movie. And yeah, no, I, I still I still love this movie. I think it's fantastic. Is it perfect? No, I, I'm sure you could punch it up a little bit in a few a few areas. But I think it's perfect at exactly what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And I have no complaints about it. I I love the marriage of styles and genres and all of the wholly unique things that it's doing that you do not see done Certainly mm-hmm. in these genres, I like that it's so stylish. I love the soundtrack. Oh, my God. The Chemical Brothers score on this is so beautiful. It is. It's marvelous. It's good shit. <laughs> yeah. That credits theme is also excellent. Yeah, this gets a big yes. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this movie. I was then. I still am. I think more people should check it out. Maybe one day I'll actually watch the show because the show I hear actually has fantastic reviews. Yeah, I, I've heard the same. Um, I think there was three seasons. Um, haven't watched it yet. But it looks pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I love this story and I'm curious to see how it was once it got expanded into, you know, its own world. I mean, it had the writers involved in it, so that's Mm -hmm. also good. I like Always a good sign. Always, always a good sign. Well, friends, I think that takes us out on Hana. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. What band inspired by Hana do you want people to check out this week? Oh, I had so many ways I could have gone with this. Uh, the way I ended up going is I wanted something that captured the same sort of dissonant, dreamy, optimistic vibes of the movie while also fitting with like a Chemical Brothers vibe, but not perfectly, but very synthy in the same way. 
So the band I'm shouting out this time is Strawberry Mountain. I played them a little bit for BJ before we sat down to record. They had an extremely productive 2020 in particular, and they pretty much only have good songs. I've not heard one by them I don't like, but they do a lot of variations in their style that I appreciate. Some of my favorite tracks are Harsh Augmented Reality, Zookeeper Submarine, I Keep Falling in Love with Everybody, and You Were in My Dreams Tonight. Beautiful. Uh, you were playing a little bit of them earlier for me, and I was like, yeah, no, this is this is good shit. Mm-hmm. So definitely check it out. All right, friends, we will see you next week. Thank you, as always, for listening, and save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.